Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Welcome back to the podcast series from the Center for Internet Security, Cybersecurity Where You Are. And it's a a moment where we take a little time to talk about some of the hottest topics in cybersecurity and try to break through the acronym flood and explain things in plain English and bring a little clarity to the confusion. So I'm joined this week by our guest, Brian Hajos of Steel Cloud. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, it's great to have you join us here. Brian's an old friend in the business and has been doing interesting work for years. I knew knew of him uh, back when I was in the government and then uh, ever since. So our our topic today is we're going to talk about some of the, the... the issues around um, secure configuration management. And let me just give you my, my historical perspective on it, Brian, and I think we, we share some, some thoughts on this too. You know, back in the late 90s, very early 2000s, uh, NSA started to get more and more into the operational testing business, the testing of live systems for the Defense Department and the intelligence community. And one of the things that became really clear was the, the struggle that enterprises had to manage the configuration of complex technology. And that turned out to be, in our view, so important that we started to document and um, uh, standardize the way we looked at those kinds of things. Now, this was about the time in history of uh, the uh, early days of DISA STIGS, and I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with that, as well as the the startup of the Center for Internet Security, which was in the year 2000. But uh, NSA became very interested in this problem, and it was based upon you know, our belief that it was actually one of the bedrock foundations of, of uh, security in an operational sense, right, in real life. And uh, so much so that in June of 2001, I got permission to release the NSA security guides to the public through the early days of NSA.gov. So that, was, that gives you a little perspective on how important that was for us. But it was followed not long after by an equally important uh, Uh, important focus on the automation of this. That is, as the technology got more complicated, it was pretty clear you couldn't ask human beings to tweak literally thousands of individual settings and manage this across any sort of scale. And so those two have always gone together in my mind, good good configurations and the automation. And Brian, so tell me a little bit about uh, what SteelCloud does, because I know this is right in your wheelhouse of the uh, uh, in in your uh, thinking and in the way you uh, design what you do. Well, we were doing work in the Department of Defense for um, really since the 80s, and and we discovered um, kind of 2007, 2008 that uh, our government customers, primarily military, are having having significant issues on uh, hardening their endpoints and um, asked us for some help. And from the work that we did with one of our government customers, uh, we developed a methodology for automating the hardening process and then then the automation of moving that hardening into production and then keeping systems in compliance. So we have been kind of studying at the ground level um, the the controls that we get from uh, folks like CIS, uh, how those controls are implemented, how people make mistakes, the challenges they have from doing an enterprise level and getting the results that they want. So, you know, we've kind of focused on all those problems in, in, in that, you know, wide spectrum of deliverables. 
One of the things I, I was appreciated about uh, your work, Brian, is that you really tried to look at this, I'll say, across the whole life cycle of this. Right, you know the 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 history of security has been, uh, you know, it's not polite to say uh, we we're operating in silos. I used to call them cylinders of excellence, which I stole from somebody else. But the idea is, you know, you have, uh, you know, the uh, great minds go off in a room and they write a document that says, "Here's the things you must do," and we kind of throw them out there as back in the old days as pieces of paper. And then, you know, human beings are left to kind of interpret these tea leaves and figure out how to implement them. Oh, well, now we need a tool. Go buy a tool to to. To get them, oh, and I have to report to an auditor or to an inspector general or somebody, and you know there wasn't enough thinking about this whole life cycle, and I think that's been inherent in the way that you've approached it, and you just described it there. Is that is that that's sort of consistent with the way you thought? Uh, yeah, it, it really is, because if you look at the whole problem, it, it's not an automation, it's not a technical problem, it's really a per- people problem, and I think the technic the technical vendors like ourselves historically have tend to be also siloed. So we'd be, you know, you'd have something in the development process. You'd have something in the authorization, RMF, ATO process, and then you'd have something else in uh, production. And so if uh, you just try to automate production and you haven't looked at those other two silos, uh, what you're going to have is something that's not going to work. And, uh, you know, I guess the key that we found in in our work is there is an original sin in this whole process. Well, there's actually two original sins, and I'll call them original defects. Uh, One is without the creation and management of perfect policy, I mean perfect policy, hardening around an app stack, wavering only those things that can't be implemented, and then managing that from development through, through sustainment. Uh, if you don't have that process down, you can automate bad policy all you want. And you're not going to get the results you want. So it really takes a view of, you know, moving from development through authorization to production and automating the entire process. Because if you just do production, which many people have tried to do with tools like GPOs or scripting tools or script automation tools. Uh, the other original sin is uh, we forgot to give our developers any tools to check their work in terms of will it run in the environment in which it's going to operate in. So if you, if you think about it, if, if the development had the, the correct easy-to-use tools, they wouldn't write software that needs waivers. They would just do it another way. They would do it, and, and, and it would save everybody lots of time and money if you're deploying software that you could deploy a standard CIS benchmark and it wouldn't break anything. So um, we uh, have also focus with our clients on getting them to move compliance as far to the left into the development cycle, at least in unit testing, um, prior to uh, integration and prior to, you know, their RMF ATO processes. Yeah, I think that's, that's uh, really very thoughtful, Brian, because, you know, as I, as I became aware of this around the same time that you were, you were starting to, uh, to take the challenge on here. I kept thinking, so, and, and it was like the, we had to break this circle, right? There was a vicious cycle going on. You know, well, we all know we should do better in security, so why don't people just do it? Well, we can't do it because things break. Well, why do things break? Well, because, you know, we actually didn't specify what what does a secure runtime look like, right? Or what is the environment for which we're aiming? So that's what you were talking about, really, is I, I really want to push that early 
and this designing and compliance. So security wizards, you know, old folks like me, it's like, oh, well, that's that's just compliance, and compliance isn't security. Well, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> it is a huge part of this, right? And it's what the boss pays attention to. It's what gets resources. You know, it's what causes uh, you know systems not to get approved. And so, if you don't design this whole machine you don't get the result that you want, right? And it doesn't lead you to perfection. What it gives you, as you said, you can, you can automate bad policy, but you have unmanageable unknown you know, security as opposed to at least I can manage to what I know. And that's a big part of the, I think the security equation that, that we have really been missing. And I think you're right. So I, I never thought of it as original sin, but I think you're, you're onto something. It, it, I mean, if you, if you don't solve the policy problem, and we spend a good deal of time on managing the actual creation of policy through, through sustainment. And if, if you don't do that right, you know, and and if you look at why um, compliance and, and the security from a control standpoint is so difficult, expensive, and fraught with danger, is because no one knows if they have good policy. When, so when something breaks, they assume, first, it's policy. So I'll go turn off a bunch of things and see if I can get it working. If that doesn't work, you know, you do a whole bunch of things in parallel, and then you finally get your system back up. You don't know exactly what fixed it. You don't have firm good policy. You don't go back and correct the things that you, you know, that you um, you loosened up, and you've drifted. And this is a constant state of drift because no one knows that they have good policy in most production, virtually all production environments. Yeah, th this notion of, you know. Um... And so the policy question is is one, right? And again, I grew up in the world, you know, big big government. So policy was written by professional policy wonks, right? Whose whose language is text, is narrative. And I, you know, I I couldn't get technical people to go to those meetings because I just hated to be part of that, right? Meanwhile, the policy people want nothing to do with these technical pinheads, you know, who are always arguing about you know esoteric uh, technical issues. And yet, again, the goal is to align those, is not to have them be separate. And so you want good, you know, narrative sort of strategy level, enterprise level policy. But you, at the end of the day, you want to know it's been implemented. Well, it, it, first thing you start with who's on top. So whether it's STIG or CIS controls, you start with the belief they're perfect, right? The thing that's imperfect are the systems. And, uh, you know, so you try to get the systems as, as close to the perfection as you can, waver as little as you can. But again, when I'm speaking of policy, it's the adjustments that you have to make from, you know, the baselines that are, that are produced through, you know, hundreds of million dollars worth of work uh, by both CIS and the Department of Defense to come up with good policy and adjustments you have to make, make them work. Yeah. And, and I think accepting that, and again, the, the term that we used back in the day was tailoring. Yes. Right? That is, here's a real life situation. Uh, you know, folks like CIS, the people that write STIGs, the NSA security guys, people take their best shot, right? These are very smart people who think a lot about security. But they don't always live in the operational world of, oh my gosh, legacy application, you know, is going to break and all that sort of thing. And so you're, you're, you know, here's the way I was described. And I think you and I were philosophically aligned around this, Brian, is that, you know, you always also want, you want to start with, it's not, it's not that I would have claimed that the NSA security guides were perfect, but they represented sort of known security properties and any variation or any tailoring of it, you want to be able to trace. You always want to be able to trace back to the source to say, you know, there, there are five of these settings that don't make sense in my environment because I've got a, 
got to tailor them, you know, I've got to relax them, got to change the whatever the value that it would look for. And that will be my operational policy, right? That, that's the term I would have used for that. And, um, but machinery should be able to tell me the difference between where I started and what's actually running. And is that okay? You know, and that's where human beings are really valuable, right? You, you want people deciding on things like exceptions and realizing that there are compensating controls or whatever, but you don't want human beings and auditors sort of worrying about that 99% that's actually the same for almost every enterprise. So Tony, if you, if you take what you just described and you think of it in an automation standpoint, uh, my automation tool, whether it be a GPO or a script or content uh, like SteelCloud produces, uh, my content should have all the controls I started with. All the changes I made to those controls should be diffs from, from that start. And then any of the differences that I've made in that should be documented in the content of why did I do this? So that as it moves through the process, everybody understands what, and I call it perfection. It's as good as humans can get. But what the, the baseline CIS is, the changes I made to the CIS and why I made on every screen, on every report, on every you know ingestion into SIM, um, you know, all of the work that I've done, all of that is documented. So it wasn't, you know, somewhere in some dark room, some, um, you know, compliance people made some decisions and the rest of the world scratching their head wondering why I have what I have. Yeah, you know, I'll share with you an anecdote. I won't name the large uh, three-letter agency <laughs> that I had this conversation with back in my uh, government days. Again, probably about the same time you were getting started here, Brian. Um, I, I I set up a meeting with the, the uh, CISO and I was the purpose of the meeting was to say, Hey, all this NSA security guidance that we're developing for the public or giving away to the public, you, you really ought to use it here in this large government agency. And I, I go in there and turned out the CISO was an old friend of mine. So he was ready for me. He said, Tony, I'm ready. I know what you're going to say. And yes, we use your stuff. I said, great. I said, well, how do you use it? How do you use the NSA security guides, right? The equivalent of a CIS benchmark. He said, well, um, uh, we give it to our contractors and then they take it and they implement it. And they have to do some tweaks because, you know, you know, there's some legacy application. I said, great. What's the difference between what we gave and what they wound up with? He says, oh, I don't have any idea. Let me get back to you on that. He calls me back and he later and he says, we have no idea. <laughs> I said, well, then you just threw away the value that we created up front, right? You should have demanded exactly what you said, Brian, right? That is every, every difference was separately documented as part of the approval process, the rationale, it, et cetera, et cetera. And in the content. So again, it, it, <laughs> yes. from an automation standpoint, it yes. doesn't exist on a book on a shelf someplace, but it exists in the automation ecosphere. So everyone that touches it has that information. But yes, uh, uh, most technologies, if you can't implement a control, they just remove it and it's gone forever. <laughs> That's right. And it's it's also, uh, you know, one of the great challenges, as I looked at this over the years too, Brian, is that, you know, they, uh, you know at, at the end of the day, right, security and insecurity are system effects, right? It's, it's sort of like how everything gets put together, right? The, the composition of, of things. But if you don't have control over the individual things, you have no hope of understanding what you wind up with at the end, I think is one way to think of it. So what would happen, and at least in the big places I work like DOD, right? 
it was entirely separate human beings that managed the perimeter devices, then managed the servers, then managed the desktops. So inadvertently, people would be making changes that had huge implications across the enterprise, but really have no knowledge of that change or how it might be communicated to someone else who would be affected by that, right? That is the desktop people might be thinking, well, this is going to be dealt with at the server and the server people are thinking, well, this is going to be dealt with. It. So, but if you don't have this sort of automation or the standard, uh, you know, way to say this is the policy at each at each component, then you have no way of sort of ever analyzing or understanding the implications, you know, as you put things together. Absolutely. We, uh, you know, one of the things that we've seen in a lot of our customers is that you have smaller groups responsible for, you know, smaller enclaves of, of machines in terms of compliance. And then you have the uh, group policy people in Active Directory, you know, they make changes. Some of them have to do with policy and sometimes they conflict. And I was sitting in a, a customer's office and their contractor uh, had, you know, had been making changes. They said, we have 500 non-compliances and you guys told me you handled all these when in fact it was um, group policy that overwrote what they did 30 minutes after they did it. And so we developed some technology that, that traps all of the GPO conflicts that take systems out of compliance so they can synchronize the two groups of organizations. Very clever, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's exactly right. And so again, inadvertently, right, you wind up Undoing and it, it, and it, it's the same, you know, one of the things that I ask some of our, you know, our larger customers is why do your systems drift? You have all these controls that you've put in place, all this security, all this management, all this auditing, and you have drift. How does that happen? And it's, you know, some of the things that you've said is you've got lots of people with their fingers doing lots of things that aren't very well controlled. You know, you control the person with access, but you don't actually control you know, what they do uh, in order to support the mission. Brian, any, any thoughts about, I'll call it the nexus of sort of IT operational management and security? Because a lot of these things kind of sit at the boundary there, right? So forget security. Just good management says, I don't want to be creating inadvertent side effects or unexpected conditions, right? That's going to waste resources and cause, cause things to, uh, to go out of whack. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, we developed some technology along those lines um, a number of years ago. It's actually our first patents um, in this area. We're along those lines of tr traditionally operational kind of management was kind of a top down or my network's up or my, you know, all of that kind of thing. And we build a technology that runs from the endpoint out. And it actually... Um, it addresses both compliance, but also operational issues. It knows all the resources that it needs, it needs to get to in order for it to operate. So it has a security posture within the organization that you can't mimic from the top down. And it is able to, uh, in 30 seconds, uh, make sure that it has all the resources it needs. So what comes into play, again, going back to like Active Directory, is that somebody in the URL filtering group decided they're going to filter a URL that a system needs to get to, to authenticate something. And the system that worked yesterday is down today and no one knows why. And, um, and we saw this, you know, time and time again and built some technology that we can validate that quickly, that you have not taken away any of the resources and all the operational silos necessary for complex technology to operate. So I, I think that it's, 
as things get more complex, and especially with zero trust, uh, things aren't going to be reached other things because, you know, the zero trust um, gremlins come out and, and they, you know, they, they ascertain, um, you know, your competence and, and, you know, your person and your infrastructure and say no, and you're, you're shoveled off into quarantine. <laughs> and yes, well, I was going <laughs> to, well, I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, the zero trust, because I was going to talk about some of the, uh, you know, you can't you can't have a podcast without talking about some of the buzzwords that are pervasive now and zero trust. By the way, and I, I put zero trust in just to give you perspective here in the um, in the category of one of those most brilliantly named programs ever, right? Because you, you know zero trust, great, great. I don't have to worry about this stuff. You know, it's zero, zero trust is great. Well, of course, it's exactly the opposite, right? I have to create trust all the time with every transaction, right, with every process, and so it's actually. Um, you know, again, it's a conceptually important idea, and lots of uh, great technology and you know uh, organizations are moving towards it. But it's also non-trivial because it really does. It's not a change; it's a change everything kind of a thing, right? You have to think differently about architectures and, and so forth. And so, what about the role of configuration uh, work and automation that in support? Of well, let me trust? let me uh, take a half step back in zero trust, and I'm going to go through analogy that. Uh, uh, Glenn Hernandez, who is the CISO from um, uh, from Coast Guard, uh, told me in a in a video I did with him uh, a while ago, and he said it's like going in that stadium here in, in Washington today. Uh, it, when you go into the stadium, you go through the metal detector, you take off your hat, you open your purse, you you give them your phone, you get all that kind of stuff. It's pretty much of a hassle, and then you get in the stadium. Once you're in the stadium, you're trusted everywhere you go. You may have to show a ticket if you're going into the the, you know, expensive boxes, but by and large, you can eat, you can drink, you can, you know, buy souvenirs. Uh, and zero trust is every time you walk up to do anything, you're going to get rechecked. You're going to go back through the metal detector. You're going to have to take off your hat, open your purse or backpack. And so uh, a lot of focus on zero trust is, is on the authentication of the person, you know, two-factor authentication, know who you are. Uh, but the other half of that, which doesn't get as as much attention, is the fact we're we're going to, we're going to now confirm your configuration. So instead of doing that once every other month, that organizations may do it today, or once when you enter the network, you know every time you go to a new process, you're going to have your configuration uh, re-interrogated. Um, uh, and so if you don't have the configuration thing down. Um, you're going to have half your your endpoints are going to be in quarantine, <laughs> and so uh, you know you can you can have good identity with zero trust. At least your end users, you know, probably get that nailed pretty well. But if you don't fix your configuration, um, you you're and don't have that automated process, you're going to have users trying to enter the enterprise um, with configurations that that are not acceptable and they get quarantined. And, and this just gets worse, um, you know, as we go, you know, COVID go to a mo mobile, uh, mobile workforce and people, you know, three hop VPNs and satellite and, and the rest of the things. So um, it's, it's two factor, the configuration, being able to get to it, being able to have confidence that a high proportion of the users that you have are going to get through the gate and be able to get into the stadium which today, uh, frankly, if they had to do it, uh, they they wouldn't. You know, if you're set up 
85 or 90 percent you know configuration compliance a lot of the the endpoints would get stopped a lot of the servers would shut down that's exactly right i think your your, your point is well taken right that this is something that has been a struggle for enterprises anyway and and now it's going to be a bedrock principle for every transaction and so if you haven't designed for it you'll never get what you want out of it and that is a really important part of it you know and you you have to have both the machinery in place and then the policy you know the what is it supposed to look like right and it's not going to be perfect it's going to be what i've decided is acceptable for the kind of transaction that, that I'm, you know authenticating for right. yeah no i think that's that is an underappreciated part of it it is and you know, I've always thought also that your ability to automate and manage configurations actually implies lots of other good properties that the enterprise has, right? That is you, you sort of, you know what, you know, this, the, all security frameworks talk about uh, software inventory, hardware inventory, and the management of all that. You know, you, you have to be able to do this, right? These are, these are practices that are inherent in the kind of things that you, you're putting in place. And I think that's really, uh, again, th and th those are an essential part of this, but this is, this is machinery. It's going to run over and over again. And so you've got to find ways to make it efficient, to make it effective, uh, to recover when things go wrong, et cetera. And plan for high volume, you know, and yeah. again, instead of, uh, uh, authenticating your configurations, uh, you know, once a month or once every other month, it's multiple times a day off of every, you know, endpoint in your environment. And you, you have to, plan on the infrastructure to be able to do it right and the infrastructure to make sure that by and large all of those uh, servers and endpoints are compliant 24 7 365 they're high or, or they'll be in quarantine right and, th and that's you know it seems obvious to you and me but again this is an obvious security goal anyway right that is you you want to be able to manage to that and then there are you know, there was also, you know, I have to confess to you, Brian, I grew up in a world where it's like, well, that's that's only compliance. That's not compliance, not equal to security. How many times have you heard that? Right. Or, gee, that's just checklist security. Well, you know, I always said, yeah, I've been on the uh, surgeon's table multiple times. I'm glad they go through a checklist. I've been on commercial <laughs> aircraft. I'm glad they go through a checklist of the cockpit. I'm not too good for those things. You know, I'm happy to have people check against best practices yeah. as a matter of routine. Well, Tony, I, I, to that point, I, again, I think you'd be surprised because you're operating at kind of a level that's a little far away from sea level. The people have said, no, no, I'm NIST compliant. But, you know, the, 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 the <laughs> STIGs right. or CIS controls are, you know, that's something to the side, not realizing that all of the controls are derived from specific, you know, NIST controls, that it all is how do you implement NIST controls? And, right, and that's so, that exact. People miss, they you know, there is nothing um, more confusing than a, this this grab bag of security frameworks and recommendation lists and so forth, right? Because they're all different language, different levels of abstraction, you know, different purpose, different boundaries. And uh, so, yeah, when, when people just tell you a statement like that, you know, where we're using whatever in this CSF, you're not actually getting that much information. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really actually quite it complicated. Is, you know, as an analogy, I'd say that NIST will tell you that you need to make chicken soup. Right. That's all they tell you. Right. The CIS controls are the recipe on how to how to make chicken soup. What are the ingredients? You know, how do you mix them together and what quantities and things? Yeah. And there was always a place for both. Uh, there's a need for both. But, you know, actually, the origin of the NSA security guides, right, was to be very uh, prescriptive. 
you know, this is not, we're not going to look generally at things. We're going to, this is specifically what we will test for because we believe these can contribute to the attack surface. And therefore, we, this is our recommendation. The controls came out of a world that said, you know, every client I dealt with it from NSA was just overwhelmed by the problem. They, they couldn't even get started. And so the idea was, well, what are the most important foundational things to do? Not, not how do I solve world hunger in the first meeting or peace in our time, but how do I get started? I think that's really been missing. Well, we had, um, you know, recently one of the largest corporations in the United States that were had for more than a decade been kind of NIST compliant and had tried to uh, do the controls themselves, make up their own, and, and got to the point where um, there just wasn't enough time or money, there wasn't enough expertise, uh, and decided they were going to standardize on a uh, you know international um, standard, uh, which was CIS, and um, it opened up the world for them because the entire it aligned the entire kind of IT cyber organization to a standard which allowed them to move forward and they quit having meetings arguing about whether one controller's you know that that Jimmy in the back you know cooked up yesterday was was more important than the other and um and as they went through implementing the CIS controls, it was a revelation of things they never thought of because, you know, there were thousands of people with, with decades of experience that went into those benchmarks and they go, yeah, we never thought of that. We never thought of that. You know, they had thought of a lot of things, but they hadn't thought of everything. And, and so I think it was a, um, it was a life-affirming mission for the people (laughs) and IT cyber for them that they'd made this choice and they actually got something out of it. It wasn't just busy work. It was... Yeah. No, thanks for sharing that, Brian, because that's, you know, that was the idea, right? Is that, you you know, I I sometimes joke that the the business, the cybersecurity business was really originated and kind of operated under what I call the special snowflake model, right? Every enterprise is unique and different and, oh, the risk appetite of your managers is different than your... Uh, connectivity is different. You're dependent. Yeah. And that is sort of true. However, my, my contention has always been in cyberspace, we have more in common than different. And so there's every reason to sort of crowdsource the thinking about this, right? And to bring all these brains together. The problem is you can't hire all these people and you can't actually meet them, but you can gather them kind of virtually and create products that represent, you know, a consensus out of that. And that's literally what we've been trying to do. Well, I can assure the audience that, and I and I had a, a, a exercise discussion with a vice president of a uh, he was uh, a leader in cyber for one of the large uh, federal integrators, and he says, as you said, snowflake, they're all different. They're all. I said, for an application, we've used the same content to to deploy uh, um, system level policy in uh, hard machines. In virtualized on-premise machines and in commercial cloud, same exact, same exact. Um, uh, we've done it in uh, both uh, classified environments and unclassified environments. The things, you know, if you harden for an application, it travels no matter where that application goes. It's that's the benefit. That's why you can productize. CIS benchmarks for an application, and you can put it anywhere in the world, and it will operate. Um, so yes, I would dismiss the snowflake because it isn't, you know, um, 
and you know we've we've used the same content for an application in multiple DOD customers and integrators and multiple classifications of systems, and it really isn't different. You know, if you're selling maybe labor, you think it's different, but it it really isn't different. Yeah, I, I think we we clearly agree on that, Brian. I think again, there there enterprises there is some level of uniqueness, but we overemphasize that. And then it paralyzes us, right? We can't take advantage of, hey, 90% of what we're dealing with is the same. And on any given day, you know, you don't, anyone, I always said, anyone who believes their threat assessment, right, that, that tells them, oh, this part of the enterprise, you don't have to worry about because the threat is really low. Anyone who takes that as a given is just playing with fire because <laughs> it's never turned out true in any, any enterprise I've been around. Yeah, and I think in terms of the enterprise, it would be to take the CIS benchmarks and say, here are the five five things that are different about our entire organization, and you apply them once to your Windows 10 you know, benchmark, and you're done. I mean, it, it isn't something that you have to do one by one every application in every environment. Um, just you know, it just like the, the DOD's controls are different DHS because they have two different banners. That's you know, right. So they have to change. There's also an implication there of a certain level of management discipline, right? To say, yep. okay, we're not, this is not the Wild West. These are corporate assets, resources that are part of the corporation. We're going to manage them the way we'd manage our physical space and our people, resources, and so forth. And a certain level of uh, control is expected, right? To be able to uh, spot variants, right? Decide what policy should be and so forth. So I, th I think that's a, a big big part of this. Brian, let me ask you one last uh, sort of big buzzword question here. There's a lot of discussion about CMMC and the the, uh, uh, the Defense Department's attempts to, to bring order to the really complicated problem of supply chain security. Any thoughts about the role of the kind of things that you do uh, relative to CMMC? Well, we have um, 10 CMMC customers today. Um, uh, we have a brand new one, uh, CMMC customer that has one server and one workstation. <laughs> so <laughs> wow. they don't, have, they don't have to be big organizations, but yeah. you know, that sometimes they are organization it isn't like your quintessential, you know, federal contractor that, that really knows what they're doing. This could be a metal shop in, in, you know, Peoria, Illinois. Um, so, you know, we see, uh, it, with CMMC, a, a lot of uh, new participants that have to, um, uh, comply, um, with a standard, um, that don't have years of experience of, of doing this kind of work. So, uh, a tool really helps. So they don't have to go through the, you know, the apprenticeship to know how to do it by hand. Um, you know, our, our, you know, we're big supporter of, of, 171 and CMMC, I wish initially, and I think they are today, closer together so that um, it's not like two standards. It's, it's, it's more like uh, one standard. And I've always, um, I've always thought that if it was more prescriptive, um, if you look at, you know, the one document that it's just a wonderful document, the, the IRS publication 1075, you know, they roll in 853, you know, it tells you there's a paragraph, uh, you know, for configuration control that says you can use these four. Here they are. You can use a STIG, you can use CIS, something from MNS and NSA and something from another government organization. You don't have to hunt around and spend months to figure out, oh, I got to implement CIS controls if I'm going to be compliant with 171. So I think if, if the government would do a little more of that, there's a bunch of business owners, just tell me what to do. 
and I'll do it. I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of effort and expense trying to figure out what I need to do to become compliant. Just tell me what to do. And, and so, you know, certainly the, you know, things like the benchmarks help because it tells them what to do. Right. And it's an area that and you're exactly right. Is it, those are not companies that have a staff of threat analysts trying to figure out the reading threat feeds and reports and trying to make sense of it. You know, they, they, you know, they're, they're willing to face their responsibility, but they need to be prescriptive, right? It needs to be, yep. take this path, this path. And, uh, and, and you want things that, as you said, with the benchmarks, right there, there is an automation path. There's tooling available. Right. There's no, every reason to do this in a way that is part of your IT management and not as some exotic add-on, but is really you know, part and parcel of the, of the way that you're doing things there. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I appreciate that. I know that's a hot area and a lot of discussion, and, but it also really highlighted how complicated the security business is, right? And how ill-equipped a lot of our economy is to deal with these problems on their own. And, and I think that... Um... And I've had direct conversations with the government when, in talking about CMMC and saying, well, CMMC is not that much different, 171, so it's not big a lift. And I said, you know that they poem most of 171, so they haven't done it. This is a huge lift. And I think sometimes um, the government does not understand how far away from the goal that commercial organizations are and how much help they need. And... Um, but they do in some places, like CISA, I think, has, has, you know, provides lots of tools and, 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 and helps organizations that don't have a deep bench of cyber people. But I think if the DOD helped the, the DIB, the, the defense industrial base, a little more, I think that would be helpful to get to the goal line. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I think that you, there's certainly been an awakening over the last few years, a small number of years, about the, the struggles of small companies, right? Again, they are not going to be able to read 100, multi-hundred page documents, make sense of this, absorb threat information and translate it into action. That's just not in their ability to do so. In fact, we really want them to be uh, doing other things for us. And we actually want lots of them out there, right? We're not. The goal is not to build pass-fail tests and only the you know, the elite few, we'd actually like to have a rich supplier base for the DOD and for the U.S. government. Absolutely. With, with lots of folks in there. And so we, we have to design that in or it doesn't appear. Listen, uh, Brian, we're, I think we're approaching the, uh, the end of our time here together. It's really delightful and I look forward to another conversation with you. But any last thought that you'd care to leave the audience with or any other uh, point you'd like to make? Yeah, I, I, I the, the one, just kind of along the lines of tooling from the development through sustainment, kind of in all the life cycles and how policies built and used. The other thing I'd like to, to add is that from a philosophical standpoint, we need to move away from an environment that is find and fix, you know, where I'm doing assessments and I'm finding things, I'm handing reports to engineers, I'm prioritizing things, to set up, setting up a, an automated environment where by design, things are in compliant and they stay in compliant. They're self-healing all the time. And, and so when you look at uh, the ability for all of us to, to afford to do this work, we, we, again, we have to move from the find and fix uh, to the, you know, uh, the, the mechanized capability, which runs all the time and I'm compliant all the time. And you're going to need that for zero trust as a, as a baseline. You just need to be compliant all the time or zero trust is not going to work. I think that's very wisely said, Brian, is that yeah, there's there's a implicit foundation there, right? That says if I yep. don't have that, 
you know, I'll never be able to, to support the kind of com complex repeated decision making that is needed to, to support a zero trust environment. So, but it's within reach, right? Let's, let's be optimistic. Yes. I think there's plenty Absolutely. of technology and great ideas out there. So Brian, I want to thank you for uh, spending a little time with us today to, to talk about these topics. Again, it's delightful to catch up with you and really appreciate the work that you guys do at Steel Cloud. And, Tony, thank uh, you. Look, look forward to your, I think you gave me a couple of other action items to track down and to follow up <laughs> with you. So I'll, I'll take those okay. on. And uh, for the audience, thank you again for joining us here at the CIS podcast series, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Please uh, join us again, uh, subscribe by the usual means, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.